Chapter forty three, part two of The Heir of Redcliffe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A recording by Marianne. The Heir of Redcliffe by Charlotte Young. Chapter forty three, part two. Markham knocked at one of the high, heavy doors and softly opened it. Amabel stood behind it and looked into the room more than half dark, without a fire, and very large, gloomy, and cheerless, in the grey autumn twilight, that just enabled her to see the white pillows on the sofa, and Philip's figure stretched out on it. Markham advanced and stood doubtful for an instant, then, in extremity, began, <clears throat> Lady Morville is come, and— Without further delay she came forward, saying, How are you, Philip? He neither moved nor seemed surprised. He only said, "'So you are come to heap more coals on my head.' A thrill of terror came over her, but she did not show it, and she said, "'I am very sorry to find you so poorly.' It seemed as if before he had taken her presence for a dream, for, entirely roused, he exclaimed, in a tone of great surprise, "'Is it you, Amy?' Then sitting up, "'Why? When did you come here?' just now. We were afraid you were ill. We heard a bad account of you, so we have taken you by storm. Charles, your goddaughter, and I, are come to pay you a visit. Charles? Charles here? cried Philip, starting up. Where is he? Coming in, said Amy, and Philip, intent only on hospitality, hastened into the hall, and met him at the door, gave him his arm, and conducted him where the inviting light guided them to the sitting-room. The full brightness of lamp and fire showed the ashy paleness of his face. His hair, rumpled with lying on the sofa, had, on the temples, acquired a noticeable tint of grey. His whole countenance bore traces of terrible suffering, and Amabel thought that even at Rakora she had never seen him look more wretchedly ill. "'How did you come?' he asked. "'It was very kind. I hope you will be comfortable.' "'We have taken good care of ourselves,' said Amy. I wrote to Mr. Markham, for I thought you were not well enough to be worried with preparations. We ought to beg your pardon for breaking in on you so unceremoniously. If anyone should be at home here, said Philip, earnestly. Then, interrupting himself, he shaded his eyes from the light. I don't know how to make you welcome enough. When did you set off? Yesterday afternoon, said Charles. We slept in London and came on today. Have you dined? said Philip looking perplexed to know where dinner could come from. Yes, at K. Thank you. What will you have? I'll ring for Mrs. Drew. No, thank you. Don't tease yourself. Mrs. Drew will take care of us. Never mind. But how bad your head is, said Amabel, as he sat down on the sofa, leaning his elbow on his knee and pressing his hand very hard on his forehead. You must lie down and keep quiet, and never mind us— we only want a little tea. I am just going to take off my bonnet, and see what they have done with baby, and then I'll come down. Pray lie still till then. Mine he does, Charlie. They thought she was gone, but the next moment there she was, with the two pillows from the library sofa, putting them under Philip's head, and making him comfortable, while he, overpowered by a fresh access of headache, had neither will nor power to object. She rang, asked for Mrs. Drew, and went. 
Philip lay, with closed eyes, as if in severe pain, and Charles, afraid to disturb him, sat feeling as if it was a dream. That he, with Amy and her child, should be in Guy's home, so differently from their old plans, so very differently from the way she should have arrived. He looked round the room, and everywhere knew what Guy's taste had prepared for his bride. Piano, books, prints, similarities to Honeywell, all with a fresh new bridal effect, inexpressibly melancholy. They brought a thought of the bright eye, sweet voice, light step, and merry whistle. And as he said to himself, gone for ever, he could have hated Philip, but for the sight of his haggard features, grey hairs, and the deep lines which, at seven-and-twenty, sorrow had traced on his brow. At length Philip turned and looked up. Charles, he said, I trust you have not let her run any risk. No, we got Dr. Mayern's permission. It is like all the rest, said Philip, closing his eyes again. Presently he asked, How did you know I was not well? Markham said something in a business letter that alarmed Amy. She wrote to inquire, and on his second letter we thought we had better come and see after you ourselves. No more was said till Amabel returned. She had made some stay upstairs, talking to Mrs. Drew, who was bewildered between surprise, joy, and grief, looking to see that all was comfortable in Charles's room, making arrangements for the child, and at last relieving herself by a short space of calm to feel where she was, realized that this was Redcliffe, and whispered to her little girl that it was her father's own home. She knew it was the room he had destined for her. She tried, dark as it was, to see the view of which he had told her, and looked up, over the mantelpiece, at Muller's engraving of St. John. Perhaps that was the hardest time of all her trial, and she felt as if, without his child in her arms, she could never have held up under the sense of desolation that came over her, left behind, while he was in his true home. Left, she told herself, to finish the task he had begun, and to become fit to follow him. Was she not in the midst of fulfilling his last charge, that Philip should be taken care of? It was no time for giving way, and there was his own little messenger of comfort looking up with her sleepy eyes to tell her so. Down she must go, and put off thinking herself into happiness till the peaceful time of rest, and presently she softly re-entered the sitting-room, bringing to both its inmates in her very presence such solace as she little guessed, in her straightforward desire to nurse Philip and take care Charles was not made uncomfortable. That stately house had probably never, since its foundation, seen anything so homelike as Amabel making tea and waiting on her two companions, both she and Charles pleasing each other by enjoying the meal, and Philip giving his cup to be filled again and again, and wondering why one person's tea should taste so unlike another's. He was not equal to conversation, and Charles and Amabel were both tired, so that tea was scarcely over before they parted for the night, and Amy, frightened at the bright and slipperiness of the dark oak stairs, could not be at peace till she had seen Arnold help Charles safely up them, and made him promise not to come down without assistance in the morning. She was in the sitting-room soon after nine next morning, and found breakfast on one table, and Charles writing a letter on the other. "'Well,' said he, as she kissed him, "'all right with you and little miss?' "'Quite, thank you. And are you rested?' "'Slept like a top. 
And what did you do? Did you sleep like a sensible woman? Pretty well, and Baby was very good. Have you heard anything of Philip? Bolton thinks him rather better, and says he's getting up. How long have you been up? A long time. I told Arnauld to catch Markham when he came up, as he always does in a morning to see after Philip, and I had a conference with him and Bolton, so that I can lay the case before Dr. Mayern scientifically. What do you think of it? I think we came at the right time. He has been getting more and more into work in London, taking no exercise, and so was pretty well knocked up when he came here, and this place has finished it. He tried to attend to business about the property, but it always ended in his head growing so bad he had to leave all to Markham, who, by the way, has been thoroughly propitiated by his anxiety for him. Then he gave up entirely, has not been out of doors, written a note, nor seen a creature the last fortnight. But there he has lain by himself in the library, given up to all manner of dismal thoughts, without a break. "'How dreadful!' said Amabel, with tears in her eyes. "'Then he would not see Mr. Ashford. Surely he could have done something for him.' "'I tell you what,' said Charles, lowering his voice, "'from what Bolton says, I think he had a dread worse than brain fever.' She shuddered, and was paler, but did not speak. "'I believe,' continued Charles, "'that it is one half nervous, and the oppression of this place, and the other half, the overstraining of a head that was already in a ticklish condition. I don't think that there is any real danger of more than such a fever as he had at Corfu, which would probably have been the death of him. But I think he dreaded still worse, and that his horror of seeing anyone, or writing to Laura, arose from not knowing how far he could control his words.' "'Oh, I am glad we came,' repeated Amabel, pressing her hands together. "'He has been doctoring himself,' proceeded Charles, "'and probably has kept off the fever by strong measures. But, of course, the more he reduced his strength, the greater advantage he gave to what was simply low spirits. He must have had a terrible time of it, and where it would have ended I cannot guess. But it seems to me that most likely, now that he is once roused, he will come right again.' Just as Charles had finished speaking, he came down, looking extremely ill, weak and suffering, but calmed and resting on that entire dependence on Amabel which had sprung up at Recora. She would not let him go back to his gloomy library, but made him lie on the sofa in the sitting-room, and sat there herself, as she thought a little quiet conversation between her and Charles would be the best thing for him. She wrote to Laura, and he sent a message, for he could not yet attempt to write, and Charles wrote reports to his mother and Dr. Mayern, a little talk now and then going on about family matters. Amabel asked Philip if he knew that Mr. Thorndale was at Kilcorin. Yes, he said. He believed that there was a letter from him, but his eyes had ached too much of late to read. Mrs. Ashford sent in to ask whether Lady Morville would like to see her. Amabel's face flushed, and she proposed going to her in the library. But Philip, disliking Amy's absence more than the sight of a visitor, begged she might come to the sitting-room. The Ashfords had been surprised beyond measure at the tidings that Lady Morville had actually come to Redcliffe, and had been very slow to believe it, but when convinced by Markham's own testimony, Mrs. Ashford's first idea had been to go and see if she could be any help to the poor young thing in that great desolate house, whither Mrs. Ashford had not been since, just a year ago, Markham had conducted her to admire his preparations. There was much anxiety, too, about Mr. Morville, of whose condition Markham had been making a great mystery, 
and on her return Mr. Ashford was very eager for her report. Mr. Morville, she said, did look and seem very far from well, but Lady Morville had told her they hoped it was chiefly from over-fatigue, and that rest would soon restore him. Lady Morville herself was a fragile, delicate creature, very sweet-looking, but so gentle and shrinking, apparently, that it gave the impression of her having no character at all, not what Mrs. Ashford would have expected Sir Guy to choose. She had spoken very little, and the chief of the conversation had been sustained by her brother. "'I was very much taken with that young Mr. Edmonston,' said Mrs. Ashford. "'He is about three and twenty, sadly crippled, but with such a pleasing, animated face, and so extremely agreeable and sensible. I do not wonder at Sir Guy's enthusiastic way of talking of him. I could almost fancy it was admiration of the brother transferred to the sister. "'Then, after all, you are disappointed in her, and don't lament, like Markham, that she is not mistress here.' "'No, I won't say I'm disappointed. She is a very sweet creature. Oh, yes, very, but far too soft and helpless for such a charge as this property, unless she had her father or brother to help her. But I must tell you that she took me to see her baby, a nice little lively thing, poor little dear, and when we were alone she spoke rather more, and begged me to send her godson to see her, thanked me for coming, but crying stopped her from saying more. I could grow very fond of her. No, I don't wonder at him, for there is a great charm in anything so soft and dependent. Decidedly, Mary Ross had been right when she said that except Sir Guy there was no one so difficult to know as Amy. In the afternoon Charles insisted on Amabel's going out for fresh air and exercise, and she liked the idea of a solitary wandering. But Philip, to her surprise, offered to come with her, and she was too glad to see him exert himself to regret the musing she had hoped for. So out they went, after opening the window to give Charles what he called an airing, and he said that in addition he should purple about a little bit to explore the ground floor of the house. "'We must contrive some way to drive him out,' said Philip, as he crossed the court with Amabel. "'And you, too. There is no walk here, but uphill or down.' Uphill they went, along the path leading up the green slope, from which the salt wind blew refreshingly. In a few minutes Amabel found herself on a spot which thrilled her all over. There lay before her Guy's own Redcliffe Bay, the waves lifting their crests and breaking, the surge resounding, the sea-birds skimming round, the shag-rock dark and rugged, the scene which seemed above all the centre of his home affections, which he had so longed to show her that it cost him an effort on his deathbed to resign the hope. The leaping waves that he said he would not change for the white-headed mountains. And now he was lying among those southern mountains, and she stood in the spot where he had loved to think of seeing her, and with Philip by her side. His sea, his own dear sea, the vision of which had cheered his last day, like the face of an old dear friend. His sea, rippling and glancing on, unknowing that the eyes that had loved it so well would gaze on it no more. The wind that he had longed for to cool his fevered brow, the rock which had been like a playmate in his boyhood, and where he had periled his life and rescued so many. It was like one of the seasons when a whole gush of fresh perceptions of his feelings, like a new meeting with himself, would come on her, her best of joys. And there she stood, gazing fixedly, her black veil fluttering in the wind, 
and her hands pressed close together, till Philip, little knowing what the sight was to her, shivered, saying it was very cold and windy, and without hesitation she turned away, feeling that now Redcliffe was precious indeed. She brought her mind back to listen, while Philip was considering of means of taking Charles out of doors. He supposed there might be some vehicle about the place, but he thought there was no horse. Very unlike was this to the exact Philip. The great range of stables was before them, where the Morvilles had been wont to lodge their horses as sumptuously as themselves, and Amabel proposed to go and see what they could find. But nothing was there but emptiness, till they came to a pony in one stall, a goat in another, and a wheelbarrow in the coach-house. On leaving it, under the long-sheltered sunny wall, they came in sight of a meeting between the baby taking the air in Anne's arms, and Markham, who had been hovering about all day, anxious to know how matters were going on. His back was towards them, so that he was unconscious of their approach, and they saw how he spoke to Anne, looked fixedly at the child, made her laugh, and finally took her in his arms, as he had so often carried her father, studying earnestly her little face. As soon as he saw them coming, he hastily gave her back to Anne, as if ashamed to be thus caught, but he was obliged to grunt and put his hand up to his shaggy eyelashes before he could answer Amabel's greeting. He could hardly believe his eyes that here was Mr. Morville, who yesterday was scarcely able to raise his head from the pillow and could attend to nothing. He could not think what Lady Morville had done to him, when she heard him inquiring and making arrangements about sending for a pony-carriage, appearing thoroughly roused, and the dread of being seen or spoken to entirely passed away. Markham was greatly rejoiced, for Mr. Morville's illness, helplessness, and dependence upon himself had softened and won him to regard him kindly as nothing else would have done, and his heart was entirely gained when, after they had wished him good-bye, he saw Philip and Amabel walk on, overtake Anne, Amy take the baby and hold her up to Philip, who looked at her with the same earnest interest. From thenceforward Markham knew that Redcliffe was nothing but a burden to Mr. Morville, and he could bear to see it in his possession, since, like himself, he seemed to regard Sir Guy's daughter like a disinherited princess. This short walk fatigued Philip thoroughly. He slept till dinner-time, and when he awoke said it was the first refreshing dreamless sleep he had had for weeks. His head was much better, and at dinner he had something like an appetite. It was altogether a day of refreshment, and so were the ensuing ones. Each day Philip became stronger, and resumed more of his usual habits. From writing a few lines in Amabel's daily letter to Laura, he proceeded to filling the envelope, and from being put to sleep by Charles's reading, to reading aloud the whole evening himself. The pony-carriage was set up, and he drove Charles out every day, Amabel being then released from attending him, and free to enjoy herself in her own way in rambles about the house and park, and discoveries of the old haunts she knew so well by description. She early found her way to Guy's own room, where she would walk up and down with her child in her arms, talking to her, and holding up to her, to be admired, the treasuries of his boyhood, that Mrs. Drew delighted to keep in order. One day, when alone in the sitting-room, she thought of trying the piano he had chosen for her. It was locked, but the key was in her own split ring, where he had put it for her the day he returned from London. She opened it, and it so happened that the first note she struck reminded her of one of the peculiarly sweet and deep tones of Guy's voice. 
It was like awaking its echo again, and as it died away, she hid her face and wept. But from that time the first thing she did when her brother and cousin were out was always to bring down her little girl and play to her, watching how she enjoyed the music. Little Mary prospered in the sea air, gained color, took to springing and laughing, and her intelligent lively way of looking about brought out continually more likeness to her father. Amabel herself was no longer drooping and pining. Her step grew light and elastic. A shade of pink returned to her cheek, and the length of walk she could take was wonderful, considering her weakness in the summer. Every day she stood on the cliff and looked at Guy C., before setting out to visit the cottages, and hear the fond recollections of Sir Guy, or to wander far away into the woods, or on the moor, and find the way to the places he had loved. One day, when Philip and Charles came in from a drive, they overtook her in the court, her cloak over her arm, her crape limp with spray, her cheeks brightened to a rosy glow by the wind, and a real smile as she looked up to them. When Charles was on his sofa, she stooped over him and whispered, "'James and Ben Robinson have taken me out to the shag.' She saw Mr. Wellwood and heard a good account of Combe Prior. She made great friends with the Ashfords, especially little Lucy and the baby. She delighted to visit the cottages, and Charles every day wondered where was the drooping dejection that she could not shake off at home. She would have said that in Guy's own home the joy had come to her, no longer in fitful gleams and held by an effort for a moment, but steadily brightening. She missed him, indeed, but the power of finding rest in looking forward to meeting him, the pleasure of dwelling on the days he had been with her, and the satisfaction of doing his work for the present, had made a happiness for her, and still in him, quiet, grave, and subdued, but happiness likely to bloom more and more brightly throughout her life. The anniversary of his death was indeed a day of tears, but the tears were blessed ones, and she was more full of the feeling that had sustained her on that morning than she had been through all the year before. End of Part 2 of Chapter 43